John, we've titled the series, Why Jesus? And we're asking the question, why Jesus did you do things and say things the way you did? And why Jesus? Why is Jesus so important? Why Jesus? Today we're looking at a fascinating story from John 9. It's been referred to already by uh, Glenn. Thank you for sharing that uh, story. And the title of the message is, I was blind, now I see. Most of us know that phrase, I was blind, now I see, and both of those parts are going to play an important role in this message. Now, some of you are looking up at the screen, you're wondering, what is that guy up to? That looks a little bit blurry, and what I want to uh, draw our attention to as we start this message is that there's multiple different levels of seeing. We use the word seeing in very different ways, and that's obvious, but I wanted to make it really obvious as we start and look at this passage. So if I would ask you if you can see what's on the screen, most of you would say yes. If you can see, if you have vision in your eyes, you can see what is on the screen. But if I asked you to read everything that's on the screen, you might say, well, I can't because I can't really see what it says. And so there's different levels of seeing. Some of you, I can see it in your eyes, I can see it in your faces. Right now you're thinking, ah, I see where he's going with this. And there's another level of seeing, and that's an intellectual seeing, an understanding. As we look at the passage today, we're going to see that there's multiple levels of seeing. There's a relational seeing, not just seeing people sitting in the pews or people uh, in our neighborhood, but actually seeing the person relationally, actually seeing the person for who they are. And then the main uh, topic of the passage is spiritual seeing, seeing things that you can't see physically, that you might, maybe can't really explain, but are spiritual truths. And so there's multiple different level, levels of seeing. So John 9, verses 1 to 41. Um, I was blind, now I see. And just because this is important as we go through the passage as well, uh, chapter 9 of John's Gospel is not a standalone piece of literature. It's actually a part of the full Gospel. Uh, it's right in the middle there. And a lot of what we're going to see in the chapter refers back to what happened in the previous chapters. So something like last week we heard that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Well, Jesus says the same thing again in this chapter, and so there's a connection there. Another thing is, Gary was mentioning that a conflict has been building between Jesus and the religious leaders. And again, in this chapter we see there was a division because of Jesus. And so we're going to be looking back to the previous chapters of John over and over and over again because it ties into what we see here. And then the last thing I'd like to point out before we actually look at the passage is why the Gospel of John. And we've been pointing this out over and over again because Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote that at the end of his book to tell us why he wrote the book. And so as we listen to this story, as we uh, see what is happening here, Let's keep in mind that it was written, it happened, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to invite Dave Van der Molen to come up. Dave is going to read the scripture for us today. We're actually going to read the whole chapter, so it's, uh, it's going to be a fairly lengthy uh, one. As Dave comes up here, uh, I reached out to Dave this past week because Dave, like the man in our story, was born blind. And I wanted to hear from a blind man some perspective that I recognize I don't necessarily have. And we had a fascinating conversation, and pun intended, Dave opened my eyes to some things that I didn't recognize before. 
Those of you who don't know Dave, Dave and his family have been part of Wallenstein uh, faithfully for many years. Uh, Dave is married, his wife Agnes, they have three kids. He works full-time for Four Cs. Uh, on the side, he does audio recordings. Uh, he records audiobooks. Uh, and just uh, over a week ago, he was on vacation, and he was fishing, and yes, water skiing. So on that picture, that is Dave by himself, behind a boat, water skiing. And now some of you are like, wait, Dave? You just said Dave is blind and he's water skiing. Ask Dave about it. Go up to him and talk to him about it. I think Dave might say that blindness is something that affects the eyes. It doesn't affect the legs. It doesn't affect the hands. It doesn't affect the brain. And so Dave is water skiing because that's what he enjoys to do. Dave, I'm very grateful that you're here to read the passage and look forward to uh, hearing this from you now. Thank you. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. <clears throat> Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age, ask him. 
A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not, <clears throat> sorry, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this, and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Thank you, Dave. Well, the uh, entrance fee was worth it just for that reading already. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a closer look at this story. We're going to look at the whole chapter because the whole chapter is really a unit. Uh, if you were listening, uh, you would have noticed that. But we don't have time to go into all the details that are here, and so we're going to do a fairly high-level flyover, and I'm going to point out a few things and hope that I can whet your appetite. I was really encouraged and challenged uh, as I was studying uh, this past week. I'm not a guy who generally cries, but I actually found myself one morning sitting on our front porch uh, and tears coming down my eyes as I was reflecting on what is in this passage. And so my hope is that as we look at this, at the end we can see clearly the truth about Jesus and about ourselves. So I said this is both about blindness and about seeing, and we just heard the chapter, and so you heard that it's about blindness and seeing. But just to prove my point, I would like to show it visually. And so this is the passage. I don't expect any of you to read this. Uh, what I do want you to see is the little circles where I've circled every instance of the word blind or sight, or I can see or I saw, and I'd like us to count together how many times this appears. So one, two, three, 40. <laughs> It would have taken too long. I think it's actually 39, 39 instances, but my point is this passage is full of blindness and seeing. 
My prayer for all of you and for myself this past week has been from Ephesians 1, verses 17 and 18, where Paul is praying for the Ephesians, and one of his prayers is that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened, might be opened, that they might see the hope that they have in Christ. So before we jump into it, let's just take a moment to pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage that we get to look at this morning, and my prayer right now is that as we look into your word, we would see you more clearly, we would see ourselves more clearly, and we would see uh, the truth about you. Father, would you speak to us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So the first part we're going to look at is the healing, the first few verses, and the chapter starts with, as he passed by, he, meaning Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. Just like the reading might have been worth the entrance fee this morning already, just this verse might be all that some of you need to hear this morning. Jesus saw the blind man. Jesus, who is the representation of God, saw the blind man, and we are shown that God is a God who sees. Before the blind man sees anything, Jesus saw the blind man. Blindness actually only appears 16 times in the book of John. 13 times in this chapter. And out of the other three times, one time it's a general use, and two times it's referring back to this chapter. So this is really the central chapter where uh, the Gospel of John talks about blindness. Jesus saw the blind man, the disciples did too, but their question was, who sinned? They didn't really see the blind man as an individual, they saw him as a theological problem, a question to be answered, a problem to be solved. They were looking at a cause. Why, why is this guy blind? Who is at fault? How often do we ask that question in situations? And I have been guilty of that myself. I have three kids, and sometimes, very occasionally, they get into squabbles and fights. And sometimes one of the kids gets end up hurt and crying. And my natural tendency is to leave the kid that's crying there and just go at the one who made the kid cry and try and figure out who's at fault, why did this happen, and not really caring for the hurting individual. The disciples see the blind man, but they ask about the cause. Jesus starts talking about the works of God that need to be displayed in this man's life. He's talking about the purpose. Now, there's a lot of debate when it comes to this. Jesus says it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Some translations say, but in order that, or for the sake of uh, God's works to be displayed. In the original Greek, there was no punctuation, and so another translation that might be is, not that Jesus says this happened for the reason of God's work being displayed, but just saying it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. This happened, and for the works of God to be displayed, we must now work the works of God. But regardless of how you interpret this, the disciples are looking at a cause, Jesus is looking at a purpose. And he says, there is a purpose here. God's glory is going to be displayed. God's works are going to be displayed in this man's life. I mentioned earlier that Jesus said he is the light of the world. Um, in this passage, he said that in chapter eight already. In chapter eight, he said it, and then there was a debate with the Pharisees. In this chapter, he says, as long as I am the world, I am the light of the world. And then he goes and gives us a practical demonstration of what that actually looks like. He's about to demonstrate in a practical way what it means to be the light of the world. 
And then he goes, spits on the ground, makes some mud, puts it on the man's eye, and he anoints the man's eyes with the mud. We said the series is called Why Jesus. He would be the first option, uh, opportunity to ask why mud Jesus. And again, we're not going to go into these details. I just want to highlight that this happened as Jesus was healing this man. There's different reasons why it could be. Could it be that Jesus did not want to be tied down to a specific method? He didn't want to be known as the guy who touches people and always heals them when he touches them. He didn't want to be the one who spoke and healed them. It wasn't about the method. It was about the man behind the me method. Not the madness behind the method, the man behind the method. And so it could be that he chose mud in this case, he chose to speak in another case, he chose to touch in another case, so people wouldn't sh think that they had figured Jesus out. This is how Jesus works. This is exactly the way Jesus always does it. It wasn't about how, it was about who. Another reason could be that Jesus was trying to demonstrate physically a spiritual truth. And so by putting mud on his eyes, the guy had to now wash the dirt off his eyes before he would regain vision. And that could be a picture of the sin that is in our hearts that needs to be washed off before we can see spiritually. One commentator pointed out that to spit on the ground and make mud, Jesus had to use dust, the dust of the ground out of which man was originally created. And so maybe Jesus was recreating here and showing that he was able to create something human out of the dust on the ground. Next we read that Jesus said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And then John tells us in brackets, which means sent. And so the man went and washed and came back seeing. It's interesting that the pool of Siloam means sent. It's interesting that John pointed out to us that it means sent. And it's interesting that just in the verses before, Jesus said in verse four, we must work the works of him who sent me. Jesus refers to himself over and over again as the one who was sent by God. Now he is sending this man to the pool called sent. And that pool is actually the same one where the Jews got the water for the water ceremonies that Gary mentioned last week or two weeks ago, I think, when they would pour out the water and Jesus came and said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. This was the same water that they use. Again, we're not going to go into the details, but the, the connections to the rest of the chapter and the imagery here is so rich. Last thing I want to point out about the healing is the obedience, because we almost, we almost don't even notice it. We read over it. It just says, so he went and washed and came back seeing. Full stop, next verse. Can you imagine what this would have taken for this blind beggar to have somebody come along he might have heard about Jesus, but then Jesus spits on the ground. He, he could hear, as far as I, uh, I can tell in the passage. He couldn't see, but he just hears Jesus <coughs> clearing his throat, spitting on the ground. He's like, what, what is going on? Can't he do that somewhere else? Next thing he knows, there's some mud on his face. Big disgrace for this guy. I couldn't help but uh, think about that passage every time I read mud on his eyes. I think mud on his face. We will rock you. And then he goes and he obeys and he comes back seeing simple faith put into practice and a big impact. So we could ask here the question, we'll do this afterwards, why Jesus, why did you heal the blind man? And one thing that we see from this uh, introduction here is that Jesus is about to give us a physical expression of a spiritual reality. He is healing this man physically 
because he wants to demonstrate a spiritual reality. And we're gonna get back to that a little bit later. Now we move on to the neighbors. And the neighbors, it's interesting because the very next verse says, the neighbors and those who had seen him, seen the man before, were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it is a man like him. So they were confused. They didn't know if it was the, if it was the man or not. And that's understandable because they had never, this wasn't a category that they could work with. They had never seen a man healed from blindness. And so naturally the question is, well, that doesn't work, so this can't be the same man. When you reflect on this, what strikes me is that there was no relationship here. Nobody of these people had a close enough relationship with this blind man that they could have told, yes, that's the guy. Imagine if one of them had brought in some bread and had a little discussion, hey, here's a, here's a bun with poppy seeds, and the blind man says, oh, thank you so much, I actually prefer sesame seeds, but poppy seeds is fine. That person could have gone to him and said, hey, do you remember that incident, poppy seeds, sesame seeds? He's like, ah, absolutely, I prefer sesame seeds. And he's like, that's the guy, I know it. We chatted last week, I know that's the guy. Nobody did that. Nobody was sitting there and talking about the recent Olympics and who had won the gold medal uh, with him and Kugua back and say, remember we were talking about who we were cheering for? Nobody could do that because they didn't have a close enough relationship. They had seen the man, but it was from a distance. They were curious, is this the man, is it not? How was he healed? They were curious, but from a distance. Similar to the disciples who saw the man, like Jesus did, but they asked, who's at fault? What's the problem here? What, what problem, theological problem, do we need to tackle here? Rather than who is this person and what is this person's need? Contrast that to Jesus who saw the man and then touched the man by putting mud on his eyes and then healed the man. A little side bracket here. This is not the main part of the story. But it seems to me that this blind man in some ways was actually an invisible man. He was sitting there and he was seen physically, but he was not seen relationally. And I think that's true in so many situations around us these days. Do we see the people around us? Do we really see the people around us as individuals? Or do you just kind of see a number of people? As a pastor, that is convicting to me. When we're dealing with issues in the church, even if it's just, when are we going to have a service? How do we do overflow? How are we going to solve this problem? How are we going to organize our small groups? Do I just see a problem that needs to be tackled or do I need see people, real people, with real needs and real feelings? This might just be scratching the surface, surface but one simple way to start with this is simply to make eye contact and to smile. And I need to be reminded of that. My wife actually leans over to me too often for me to really want to admit and says, smile. <laughs> because even now I might not be smiling, I'm, I'm focused, I, I know what I need to be doing, and so my brain is using all its power to speak and it forgets to smile. So let's just practice that for a moment. Why don't you just take your fingers and, and just smile. And maybe turn around and look around at the people and make eye contact and smile. Yes, you, you, we'll take a moment for that. And then once you've got a hang of that, maybe, maybe sometime in the future you can go to the next level and you can actually say hello. And you can say, I'm glad to see you. How are you doing today, comma, really? There is so much isolation and so much loneliness these days. Just a simple smile is the first step. 
And I'd love to continue this. This was actually a whole section I had in the sermon, but I cut it out because we need to get on with the passage. But let's remember to smile. So they said to him, where is this guy? He says, the man they call Jesus made mud, anointed it in my eyes, said to me, go and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud. So now the Pharisees are introduced to this story, and again, we're taken back to previous passages where Jesus, actually in John 5, a very similar story where Jesus had seen a man who was lame. He had healed him by a pool. The Pharisees had got involved, interrogated the man, and then afterwards Jesus went and spoke with the man. Very similar story to here. And as well, it happened on the Sabbath. And so we're not going to go into much more detail except for saying that it caused division because the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. And others say, yeah, but if he wasn't from God, he couldn't do signs like this. And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And the blind man says, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents. So the conflict continues and they have to figure out what's going on here and so they bring in the parents. It's interesting now, if you think back, so we had the neighbors, we had the Pharisees, now we have the parents, looking at the different responses of these three groups. The neighbors, as I mentioned, they're curious, but distant. They want to know about the man, is this the man or is he not? How was he healed, who healed you? They're curious, but not really, not really getting into the details. The Pharisees, they don't care about the man one bit. They just want to know, who is this Jesus guy? Is he a sinner? Is he from God? They don't care about the man. They want to know all about how he was healed because they're after Jesus. Now, the parents, they actually know the man, but it seems like they don't care how he was healed because they call the parents and ask them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And the parents respond, we know this is our son and that he was born blind. They're the only ones who actually know, yep, that's the guy, that is our son. And then they say, but how he now sees, we do not know. And then they add something which is interesting, nor do we know who opened his eyes. It's like, wait a minute, you just proved yourself guilty. Nobody said anything about anyone opening his eyes. We just asked, do you know how he sees? And they say, we don't know how he sees, nor do we know who healed him. And then John actually tells us, I think the parents did know, but because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus, they would be put out of the synagogue. That's why they said, he is of age, ask him. Again, contrast this with Jesus' response. Jesus, who saw the man, who engaged with the man. The neighbors are distant, the Pharisees don't care about the guy, they just want to know about the miracle. The parents, they know the guy, but they don't want to get involved in the politics of, of the healing. I don't want to be too hard on the parents because if you remember the question the disciples asked at the start, who sinned, this man or his parents? I think people would have been looking suspiciously, maybe in some cases even maliciously at the parents because they're like, there must be something going on there. There must be something in your life why you did that. And so I wouldn't be surprised if the parents were already on the fringe already kind of looked at suspiciously, and so they just didn't want to continue that on, so they said, 
he's of age, why don't you go and ask him? We are staying out of this. Now it comes back to the Pharisees again, and this is where it almost, it almost turns a little comical, almost a little like a sitcom. So uh, you friends lovers out there, you've got two doors in the living room, and uh, Rachel goes out one door, and Chandler comes in the next door and switches scenes. Or Big Bang Theory, you kind of have one living room where the main action happens, and then one character leaves, and the other one comes, Penny goes out, and uh, Sheldon comes in, and now there's a different scenario. So the Pharisees are there, and they bring the guy in, and the guy goes, and the parents come. Now the parents go, and the guy comes back in. And then he makes this statement. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now that's a lie, because we just read a few chapters earlier that there was a division among them. Some said he's a sinner. Some said he must be from God. Now they say, we know this man is a sinner. Give glory to God and admit it. And he says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. All he can go by is what he has seen, what he has experienced so far. Then they say, well, you're a disciple of this guy. We are disciples of Moses. The theme of Moses has been throughout the book of uh, John as well. It actually starts right uh, in chapter one where it says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Moses comes up again and again. Jesus actually brings up Moses several times, says, you guys say that you follow Moses, and yet you are neglecting me. John 5, 45 to 47 is one of those passages of many. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he, Moses, wrote about me. And so what Jesus is saying is I, me and Moses, we're actually on the same team. I am actually the continuation, the fulfillment of the law of Moses. And so if you insist on believing Moses, you should really be believing me as well. And this is where the Pharisees get it so wrong because they say, we are disciples of Moses, but this guy, we don't even know where he came from. And rather than investigating, rather than caring, rather than having an open mindset to figure it out, they just say, he must be a sinner. And then the blind man gets a little bolder and he actually says, God does not listen to sinners. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. I think he might have been referring back to something Nicodemus said in chapter three when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Master, we know that you are from God because if you weren't from God, you couldn't do these signs. And now the blind man is telling those very Pharisees, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. But the Pharisees are fed up and they kick him out. And then we come to the end of this passage and Jesus appears, and Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And Jesus himself ties the purpose of the book of John right down to this incident, to this story, to this passage, because we heard that the book of John was written that we might believe in Jesus. And now Jesus asked that very question, do you believe in the Son of Man? In verse one, we read that Jesus saw the blind man. Here we see Jesus heard they had cast him out and having found him, he said. Jesus saw the blind man, then he seeked after, he sought after the blind man, and now he found the blind man. It reminds me of Luke 19, where Jesus says, the son of man has come to seek and to save, which was lost. 
Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. The man answers, who is it? How, uh, who is he so that I might believe in him? And Jesus could have just said, well, the guy speaking to you, uh, I'm the guy, the one who is speaking to you. That's what he said in John 4 to the woman at the well when she said, I know the Messiah is coming. And then Jesus said, I who am speaking to you am he, I am the Messiah. That's what he could have said here, but he adds something else, which is beautiful. You have seen him. He says to the man who was blind, not just it's me, but you have seen him. I believe he means it physically because he's standing face to face and speaking to Jesus, but I also believe Jesus means it spiritually. Jesus sees the progression that has been going on in this man's journey, even though it's just this short chapter. In verse 11, when the neighbors ask the man, how did you get healed? He says, the man they called Jesus. He told me, he put mud on my face, big disgrace, went to the pool of Siloam, and he said, wash. Next, he says, he is a prophet. When the Pharisees ask him, who do you say he is? Next, when the Pharisees are pushing a little strong, he says, well, this man must be from God. He couldn't be doing this signs if he wasn't from God. And now, the next thing he says, Lord, I believe. You have seen him, it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So coming back to our question, the main question of this series that we're asking every time we look at the passage here, why Jesus, why Jesus did you heal the blind man? And we said earlier, it was a physical expression of a spiritual reality. He healed this man physically so that he could show something spiritually. But it goes deeper than that. Remember when the disciples asked him who sinned, this man or the, fa- or the parents? They were asking for a cause. Jesus gave them a purpose. Who remembers what that purpose was? It was that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus knew there was a purpose in this man's life, and it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. So let's take a closer look at that. We're going to look back again at previous chapters in John. The Pharisees had asked him, what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The sent is here again. The belief is here again. And Jesus says the work of God is actually to believe in Jesus. At the beginning of chapter 9, he tells us the works of God, believing, has to be displayed in this man's life. And now we come to the end of the passage, and he asks the man, do you believe? And the man says, Lord, I believe. That was the work of God being worked in this man's life. And now we see the full picture. It wasn't just a physical healing. It was actually a physical healing which demonstrated almost a real-time, a real-life parable of a spiritual healing as well. And John included that in his gospel. Why? So that anyone who reads this might believe as well. And so the question that we're posed with here as people reading this passage and looking at it together is, do you believe in the Son of Man. Jesus finishes off this real-life parable with these statements. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. 
Now, at first glance, that seems confusing. We're right at the end. We're about to get to the, uh, to the pinnacle of this chapter, and then Jesus says, for judgment I came into the world, which is contrary to what he's been saying in other places, that he didn't come to judge or to condemn. He came to save. So the first question is, did Jesus come to save, or did he come to condemn? And then the second question is, how do we respond appropriately? Colin Cruz writes it this way, he's a Bible commentator. Jesus' purpose in coming to the world was not to judge the world, but there was a sense in which judgment occurred because of his very presence in the world. And in John 3, John 3.16, best known Bible verse, uh, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And then John 3.17 continues, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus didn't come primarily to condemn, to judge, he came to save. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but catch this, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is judgment. The light came into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So what is this saying? I think this, the easiest way for me to to illustrate this is to think of a sports competition where awards, uh, there's an award ceremony. And I'm going to pick boxing because to me that's just really, uh, really clear. So in a boxing match, two people are punching at each other. And then at the end, uh, either one of them falls over, it's called a knockout, or there's a few judges that decide who did a better job and who is going to win. And there's a referee, I don't even know if he's called referee, is he called referee, umpire? I don't know, the ringmaster. He's in the middle and he gets the two guys to stand up next to him, and then he holds both of their hands, and then on the count of three, I don't know exactly how it works, but he's gonna lift one person's hand up, and he's gonna declare a loser. Now you're like, no, 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 he's gonna declare a winner. Yeah, he's declaring a winner on this side, but at the same time, without using words, he's declaring a loser over here. And that person knows it and feels it because you can see it if you watch boxing, you can see how they are always upset because they thought they were supposed to win, they're all confident. So by declaring a winner, the referee is also declaring a loser. The purpose of putting the hand up is not to declare a loser, it's declare the w to declare the winner. But in doing so, automatically he is also declaring a loser in boxing. And so um, Cruz says, Jesus' purpose in coming into the world was not to judge the world, but there is a sense in which judgment occurred because of his very presence in the world. If he brings light and lets people see, that also means there must be darkness and people who don't see. So why Jesus? Jesus declares himself as the light of the world and he says, those who do not see may see. He came that those who do not see may see. And the reason that is necessary is because there is a darkness. Isaiah 9, 2 says, the people who walked in darkness. That's you and that's me and that's all of us. We all walked in darkness, but we have seen a great light because Jesus the light of the world came in. And so, as we close, the question is, how do we respond? And unfortunately, we cannot respond with I see. None of us can be sitting here saying, I am so grateful that I can see clearly, because that's exactly the thing that Jesus finished with when he said to the, to the Pharisees, now that you say we see, your guilt remains. 
And so we have a little dilemma here that is even amplified by the fact that the only person in this passage who ever said, I see, is the man who was blind and then healed. I don't know if this is a sinner or not. One thing I know, I was blind and now I see. So how can Jesus say that if you say, I see, your guilt remains? And how could the blind man say, I see? And the difference is simply this. The blind man's testimony was, I was blind and now I see. Remember Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see, only those who do not see, only those who recognize that they are blind are going to see. And so we can only say, now I see, if we recognize that previously we were blind. Don't miss this as not applicable to you this morning. I don't care what your background is. I don't know what your affiliation to religion or to Jesus or to God is. We're all on the same level, same playing field here. If we cannot say I was blind or I am blind, we cannot say I see. Jesus as the light of the world came that those who recognize they do not see that they would see. Now this is not quite the full testimony of the blind man. What he said, if we look at the whole chapter, he said, that man they called Jesus, he told me to go and wash. And so he says, I was blind, then something happened, and that then, that something was Jesus. I was blind, then Jesus, and now I see. We've got the discipleship path up on the wall there. We've used this uh, colorful visual here, and it actually demonstrates this darkness and light image very well. To the left of the cross, you see the darkness. You see those who are separated and searching. They are the ones who are blind. And if they recognize that Jesus is the light of the world that is shining into the world, and if they come to Jesus and say, I believe in the Son of Man, then they can move into light. And this story of the blind man who was able to see because of Jesus is a picture of that. So what is our personal response? We can't look at this chapter without being confronted. Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's the question that Jesus asked. And if your answer is no, then my question to you is what is keeping you from that? Notice the blind man didn't do anything Special. He didn't do anything righteous. He didn't do anything religious. All he did was responded to an invitation. All he did was respond to Jesus' initiation. Jesus saw him. Jesus found him. Jesus healed him. Jesus asked him, do you believe? And all the blind man did and all that we have to do is to respond. There's a couple of dangerous responses. The first one is ignoring the gospel. I don't need this. John 1 talks about Jesus coming into the world, came to his own, but his own did not receive him. There was division about Jesus throughout the Gospel of John, and so a very natural response is, I don't need this, I don't believe it. But it is a dangerous response because Jesus came that we might have life, and if we don't respond to him, that equates to not having life. Even for those of us who would say, yes, I believe, I've responded in that way, There's two ways that we can get this slightly wrong on either side. I was blind, now I see. We can overemphasize the I was blind, and we can say, I don't really deserve this. And I've spoken to many, even in this congregation, who really struggle with this. I don't feel I deserve it. I'm not good enough. I need to figure things out first before I come back to God. I struggle to forgive myself for what I did. 
Did you know, did you know that forgiving ourselves is not actually something that is in the Bible? We don't need to forgive ourselves. God has forgiven us. And so if we say, I don't deserve this, we're actually ignoring 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone. New things have come. And all these things are from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. So if we're overemphasizing the I don't deserve it, I am guilty, I'm, I'm in that guilt and shame, and I could never come to God, we're not recognizing the goodness of the gospel and the good news. And then on the other side, if we overemphasize the IC, I think there's a very real danger, especially in long-time Christians, that we start assuming the gospel, and we think we deserve the gospel. Now, none of us would admit openly and say, oh yeah, I, I deserve the gospel, but could it be that in some way, if we've been walking faithfully with God for a long time, that over time we kind of feel like, yeah, this is, this is normal, this is how it should be, this is just expected. In a, in a way, I deserve it. And it's no longer grace, it's almost like a human right that we have. Yep, I, I see, and I'm glad that I see Jesus died for me, and, uh, and I am free. Ephesians 2 starts off, if I can find Ephesians 2 in here, starts off with, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked but God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ we were dead and actually a few verses later this isn't uh, read as, as often verse 11 and 12 therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. If we just focus on the IC, our testimony is only half full. We need to recognize that we were blind, then Jesus, and now I see that was the testimony of this blind man. Is that our testimony as well? I'd like to finish with Luke 15. Very briefly, Luke 15 is the lost and found in the Bible. Three stories about things that were lost and then found the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son, which I don't understand why it's not the lost son. It should be the lost son, but that's another, that's another story. Jesus tells these parables because the Pharisees were grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus said, that is exactly why I'm here, to save, to seek and to save that which was lost. A man lost one sheep out of a 100, and he went after the sheep, and he found the sheep. And then he says this, rejoice with me to his neighbors. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. Which one? That was lost. It's not just I have found, it I have found what was lost. We need to recognize that we were not just blind, we were lost, we were dead. Parable of the lost coin. A woman has 10 silver coins, she loses one, she turns everything upside down to find it, and she says, rejoice with me for I have found the coin. Which one? Which I had lost. And then the parable of the prodigal son, the lost son, who didn't care about the father, he cared about the blessing, and he left on his own, got in a mess and realized it and came back. And then it says this, he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father was looking out for him. His father saw him, felt compassion, and ran, embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said the only thing appropriate to say in that moment. He didn't say, I thought things through, I figured it out. Let's, let's start over again, let's, let's come up with an arrangement. He simply said, I have sinned. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. <laughs> 